ki te awa ko Waimakariri, tina korua. Kai te mihi o ki te mana whenua, ko nai tuahuriri, tina koutou. Ko ngā manuhiri, tina koutou. Ngā mihi mahana ki a koutou katoa. Welcome to Yabba Beiru, Fire Stars and Witches. My name is Shannon Burns and I feel extremely fortunate to be here with all of you this afternoon. Just a couple of notes before I introduce um, our esteemed guest. Please ensure that your phones are switched to silent, but feel free to post or tweet at Word Christchurch. Um, I'm sure it will be okay if you take some photos as well, as long as your flash is turned off. I'd like to thank the Christchurch Art Gallery, Te Puna or Wife Fetu for hosting us, the Edinburgh International Book Festival for making this event possible, and again, thank you for coming along. Yabba Beidou is an award-winning filmmaker, journalist and writer, born in Ghana and educated in the United Kingdom. Yabba has worked as a civil servant in Ghana for the BBC, at the Institute of African Studies at the University of Ghana, in Jamaica, in Spain and elsewhere. As a documentarian and filmmaker, Yabba has interrogated racism in Bristol in the 1987 series Black and White, the intersection of magic and misogyny in the 2010 documentary, The Witches of Gambaga, which won Best Documentary at the 2010 Black International Film Festival. Silent. <laughs> and the life and work of one of Africa's foremost women writers, Ama'ata Aidu, in the 2014 film, The Art of Ama'ata Aidu. Yaba's first novel, True Murder, was published in 2009 and her magical realist young adult novel, A Jigsaw of Fire and Stars, was published in 2017 uh, and shortlisted for the 2018 Branford Bose Award. I hope I'm saying that right. It is my sincere pleasure to introduce Yaba Beidou, so please give her a round of applause. Well, <laughs> I've been looking forward to this conversation for a really long time. So it's nice to have you here finally. It's a pleasure to meet you. We met sort of serendipitously outside the art gallery and I tried not to exhaust all my fangirl questions before this <laughs> so we can, we can experience this together. I thought that we might start with a short excerpt from the novel. Not everyone will have read it yet, but of course there are copies available outside in the foyer um, and Yabba will be signing them at the end of the session. Perhaps you might like to okay. introduce and then read the excerpt. Right. Um, uh, this novel, A Jigsaw of Fire and Stars, tells the story of Santi, um, who was a child, a baby, when her parents were trying to cross from Africa to Europe illegally. Anyway, what happens is that their boat is scuttled, um, and um, in a bid to save their daughter, they put her in a sea chest and put all the treasure that's on the boat in her in her, her chest and fling her overboard. And um, she's discovered by um, a woman called Mama Rose who runs a traveling circus. And Mama Rose adopts Santi and brings her up to be, become a good circus performer. Um, however, when Santi's about 14, the ghosts of the papa start haunting her. And, um, they want a, a final reckoning so that their deaths are acknowledged and they count for something in the world. But uh, from the very beginning, um, Santi's always been troubled by a recurring dream. So the opening chapter describes the dream. There's only one thing makes any sense when I wake from my dream. I'm a stranger and shouldn't be here. Should my luck run out, a black-booted someone could step on me and crush me as if I'm worth less than an ant. This I know for a fact. And yet once or twice a week, the dream seizes me and shakes me about. Kill them, kill them, take their treasure. The order goes out and a dilapidated trawler in a stormy sea shudders. An iron-gray vessel, lights blazing, rams us a second time. The iron monster backs away, then with engines at full throttle, lunges again. Faces contort. Old ones, young ones, men and women, brown and black faces. 
screams punch through the air, fishing nets tangle, spill over. A fuel tank explodes, and the sea glows, roiling with blood and oil. Below deck, a stench like an overripe mango oozes from a crouched woman. She shrieks, my baby, my baby, save my baby. A tall man responds with a command. The sea chest, fetch our treasure, quickly, for the child's sake, move. A figure tumbles into the sea. Then an old man, a girl in his arms, leaps. A deafening jumble of sound and sea swallows the cries of the drowning. The slip-slip patter of bare feet on galley stairs ascend. Anxious eyes flit in faces bright with fear in the flame light. The hand of the tall man pummels a pillow of yellow dust, then a footrest filled with glittering stones for the baby's feet. Someone folds a cloth, a fine tapestry of blue and green, into a blanket. Give her this, says a burly, bald-headed man, my dagger to help her in battle. May the child be a princess, a true warrior, valiant in the face of danger, yet merciful to those she defeats. May your spear arm be strong, my daughter, the tall man adds, your legs swift as a gazelle's, and your heart, the mighty heart of a lioness, protecting her cubs. The petrified woman scribbles a note and hides it beneath the pillow, whispering a prayer. May our ancestors watch over you, my child. May the creator of all life guide you and make you wily in the ways of the world we are sending you to. The gray vessel, a trail of carnage in its wake, surges forwards with a splutter of gunfire. Bullets splinter the deck, tearing it open, and the trawler erupts in flames. The tall man grabs the baby and bundles her into the chest. He holds it aloft and flings it into the sea. It lurches, almost capsizes. The baby gurgles, entranced by the rough play of water as a wave steadies her boat. She smiles, a jigsaw of fire and stars reflected in her eyes, and she stretches a dimpled hand to touch the moon. Burning timber from the trawler's bar crashes down and splashes the baby's face. Enchanted by flying embers, she coos. But when the sobs of the dying reach her and waves stifle their gasps, she begins to whimper and flung to and fro, bobs up and down, crying in the night. It's quite a gripping first chapter, mm -hmm. and I wasn't really prepared for how lyrical it is. Mm -hmm. um, this kind of, I found myself reading with a rhythm, so it's, it's really beautifully put together. You kind of get a sense from that opening chapter, but the theme of origins figures really prominently in this work. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about Santi's quest for origins and then your own origins as a writer coming to this novel. Ah, well, that's a really big question, <laughs> but I'll we'll try. Start big. Um, well, Santi, like I described, is um, the child of um, Ghanaian parents. And I come from Ghana, um, but her parents. Um, uh, want are searching for a better life in Europe, and but like you know their boat is destroyed. But they their prime um, um, reason is to is to save their child before the boat goes down, and the boat goes down. And then Fat Santi's found by uh, a woman um, who's a very large woman and is a circus performer called Mama Rose, who runs a travelling circus, and the circus is made out of. Um, all sorts of misfit characters. Um, there's a, a ver the tallest man in the world called Redwood, who's uh, an American and who, um, uh, according to his story, uh, used to work in Wall Street before the crash and then went on the road and sort of joined the circus with his wife, who's, again, the tallest woman in the world called Busy Lizzie. Uh, and there's characters like that. But Mama Rose has two other children who she's ado adopted, again, illegally, called Cobra and Cat, 
who I think are most probably refugees from Afghanistan because they're quite light-skinned but dark as well with green eyes uh, and they're twins. Um, and so she runs this motley group of this motley family and takes them traveling around the world. Uh, and for the, for the most part, the, the family live, live off the grid, i.e. there, you know, um, no internet, no mobile phones. And you realize as the story progresses, that they have a reason for living off the grid, which the children don't know. But at the start of the story, um, Santi is, um, uh, she's beginning to ask Mama Rose questions about where she comes from. And Mama Rose is reluctant to divulge all, all that she knows because she wants her baby to be a baby. But Santi feels that she's not a baby. She's, she's grown and she can look after herself. And she, she leaps headlong into this adventure, which um, enables her to find out more about her heritage and where she comes from. Cool. And what about yourself? <laughs> Me, I come from Ghana. I um, was sent to school in Europe very young, and I went to prep school in Devon, and then to a girls' boarding school, and then I went um, to university. And then I returned to Ghana to work with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs as a trainee diplomat. And um, I found myself very frustrated because the things that um, my colleagues were aspiring to uh, like uh, very important things like a cooker, a fridge, a home, a car. Uh, and the whole point of being a diplomat was that when you're abroad, you'd be paid in foreign exchange so you could buy all these things. And, and when you return home, have the basis of a, a, a good life. I thought, well, I can get all these things in London, no problem. And so, you know, um, I, I didn't sort of stick Ghana out like my parents did. Uh, because, you know, their dreams were not my dreams, and I wanted my independence. And I, I returned to Britain, and I um, did another degree, and then joined the, um, the BBC as a general trainee. And uh, I suppose, do I search for origins? I've always been going back and forth from Europe to Ghana throughout my life, and Ghana is very important to me. And... Um, uh, yet I live, for the most part, in London, and my home is in London, but my home is in Ghana as well. And I think, like many people, I'm, um, I sort of, I, I sort of, I feel comfortable in several pet places, and Ghana and London are those two places. Cool. Very awesome. Mm. So, A Jigsaw of Fire and Stars is, in terms of genre, designated magical realism, and that's a tricky enough term mm. um, in the first place. I wondered what you thought about that designation. Was it consciously a magical realist novel, or did that sort of just kind of emerge organically? Well, I just like to tell stories, and um, the stories I tell have an element of the supernatural in them, because... Um, like most Africans and most, um, yeah, I, I, I accept that there's a supernatural element to life. I don't think that we're just flesh. I think that we're charged with spirit, and spirit is in everything. Um, it's in our environment, it's in water. The world, the, the, the whole world is alive with spirit. That's the, what I believe. And so when I write a story, I'm telling a story with all those dimensions in it, not just the physical dimension, not just the physical and the psychological. And sometimes when you're telling a story, um, uh, a story which is about partly about heritage, I think it's, it's helpful to, um, to make ghosts real and to make ghosts alive so that they are telling their story in the overall story you're telling. So um, when something you know, I write is designated as magic realism, I sort of think, well, it's just a term that's used to categorize the story. Um, um, and that you know, if more stories had elements of magic and spirit in them, I think they might be better. Mm. Yeah. They might just be realism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you definitely echo things that 
for example, Isabel Allende, the yeah. Chilean writer, has said before that we live with these spirits, but they go by other names. They yes. might be memory or our ancestors yeah. or, you know, the matter that mm. surrounds us, so mm-hmm. of course. You mentioned cat and cobra before. Yes. So these are Santi's adoptive siblings. Um, their names, cat and cobra, animals. Um, Santi's closest companion is a golden eagle called mm. Pris. Mm. It seems to me that animals and references to animals are quite significant in mm. the novel. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? I find it hard to talk about that <laughs> because um, it just happened. You know, I was writing and uh, the names Cat and Cobra came to, my, to mind and, uh, and Pris, I wanted when the child... I love stories uh, of um, children who are thrown and given to the elements and somehow, like the story of Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome, like Moses in the bulrushes, the idea of, you know, a crisis and a child being, you know, sent away or left to the gods to take care of and somehow um, the child survives and, you know, leads leads the Israelites to freedom (laughs) or... or, um, found uh, are looked after by by cub uh, by um, a wolf uh, and fed by a wolf and then um, formed the, the city of Rome. I like all those stories and I wanted when Santi was thrown abro- overboard and is being rocked by the elements and I just thought it'd be really nice if there was a, a creature that could protect her and a golden eagle came to mind and um, which I've called Pris and and Pris helps her, um, you know, uh, land on the, a beach in Spain. And Pris is her closest intimate throughout the story. There are humans, but Pris is the one who um, um, Santi really relates to. And, and you know, um, and they have a very, very intense relationship. Partly because I like, I like eagles and I would like yeah. to have my own golden eagle and, and be able to do all the things Santi does. Like she's very athletic and can jump over roofs, tops in Cadiz. And, and I, I sort of, you know, I thought, great, I'd like to do that. Write what you want to read. Yeah. That's the kind of golden rule. Mm. <laughs> so we're going to talk a bit about the politics of the novel shortly, but I just have one sort of more question about its form. Mm. Um, I study magical realism, and I read a lot of references into the novel, and yes. we'll talk a little bit about Toni Morrison later. Yeah. But I wondered if you were in conversation with any particular authors or works, or just generally, are there writers who yeah, you want to be like or who inspire the kind of work that you've produced? Um, I just want to tell stories as best as I can, and this um, story had a very long gestation, um, I started off, um, I've been thinking about the whole migration thing um, from, you know, uh, Africa to Europe for since the late 90s, because um, uh, a friend of mine, um, William Nicholson, wrote a, the script of a, a drama, um, a BBC drama called The March, which imagined a, a march of people from um, Africa to um, uh, Morocco and wanting to cross because of all sorts of reasons. And so the idea of this migration, which has been going on for a long, long time, um, interested me. And I wanted to do, write it for children. Um, but I wanted, because I, I, you know, I, I like things like Tarzan and all those sorts of... I grew up with Tarzan. And I wanted to do something that was like Tarzan, but backwards. I, so instead of Tarzan, Lord Greystokes, you have a young African girl who saves Europe. And so I, I started off writing a story called Nazrat, which is Tarzan spelt backwards. And, um, uh, and so I, I toyed around with that for a while, and then I put it away, and then I came back to it after True Murder was published. And, um, and, and, it, and again, I, I, so it took me a while to find the right form for this, and I want to, I, started writing science fiction because I thought the things I was thinking of were just so outrageous, they would never happen. And, but in a future world, it might happen. And so I wrote um, uh, uh, the fir- a first draft of a completely new novel, uh, which was science fiction, in 2013. Uh, and I know it was that date because my father was 90 at the time and I was home in Ghana working really hard in the mornings and so on. 
And then uh, I couldn't find a publisher who's interested in the story, and I, I know the reason why. But luckily, I found an editor called Fiona Kennedy, um, uh, and she said, look, I love your characters, um, but rather than creating a whole new science fiction world, why not actually set it in the present? Little did I know how um, prescient her, her insight would be. And, and then I set it in the present, and I set it in Cadiz, and, um, and used my experience. I lived in Cadiz for a year, and, uh, and the book was published last year um, as, a, as a realistic novel, as, or it was a contemporary novel set in the present day and infused with all the, 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 the traumas of the migration um, crisis that's taking place in Europe or has been taking place in Europe. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Very prescient, but again, as you say, something that's been happening for quite a long time yeah. and seems only to have struck a kind of popular chord recently. Mm. Um, beyond the family circus and beyond the kind of fantastic things that happen, yeah. the novel is dark at times. It's about trafficking and violence. Mm -hmm. um, you've talked about the kind of politics of the novel, but maybe, yeah, a little bit more about... You know, what, what are your thoughts about kind of movement in this, this kind of contemporary world that we're living in? Um, I think uh, the world is made up of migrants. All of us are migrants in one way or another. And um, except for when you look at the thing historically, what's, what uh, I would call a migrant was, was termed um, explorers. So um, when white people take over other territories. It's called exploration <laughs> and discovery. Whilst when black people are trying to save their lives because of climate change, it's called a migration crisis. Uh, we're, t we're called economic migrants rather than refugees who just want um, security of um, uh, a decent life, i.e. security to put food on the table, to have a roof over our heads. And it's seen differently, and I find it extraordinary that countries that actually were built on migration and genocide um, now talk about migrants, outsiders, Hispanics, or wherever, um, undermining everything that they've managed to accumulate. And I just think it's actually politics. It's a, it's a political distraction, because we now live in, in a world which is very, very unequal is more unequal than ever before, where 1% of the world's population own most of the world's wealth. And um, talking, scapegoating, is something that comes very easily to the human mind. And it's easy to be distracted from the inequalities we live with when um, it's, we're told that it's migrants who are the problem. It's migrants who are sort of... Um, uh, making the National Health Service in Britain not function well. Forget the fact that it's usually migrants who are staffing the National Health Service. It's migrants who are taking our housing. It's migrants who are taking our jobs. It's all nonsense. Uh, but it's been manipulated by politicians for their own ends, because I think their aim is to protect the 1%. Hmm. It's very easy for us in New Zealand, I think, to imagine that this is something that, you know, is only relevant beyond us here in the, you know, Antipodean Pacific, um, in our little haven. But in fact, this is something super relevant, and, and you know, it's in our news all the time as well. Mm. We could think about care workers and, and who makes up that kind of work here in New Zealand too. Um, you were interviewed by Catherine Ryan yesterday yes. on the Nine to Noon program. Yeah. If you didn't hear it, it is available as a podcast on National Radio website, and I do recommend it. She asked you about freedom. You've been you know, yes, asked to write yeah. about what freedom means to you. And you spoke about freedom um, in relation to the independence of Ghana mm. and freedom as a nation-building project. Yeah. I would maybe like to hear your thoughts about, on the one hand, the nation, this kind of anti-imperialistic you know, dream of a nation that emancipates people mm. versus national borders that keep us sort of separate. Um, it seems it can have a, it's sort of yeah. a double-edged sword. <laughs> well, it's, um, I mean, uh, Ghana's independence was a big thing when it happened. It was huge in the sense that it was the first um, sub-Saharan African country to break free of colonialism. And um, 
you know, uh, on the 6th of March, 1957, our president at the time, Nkrumah, um, said, Ghana at, is free at last, is free forever, and, um, and yet linked the independence of Ghana with the liberation of black people throughout the world, in Africa, in America. So Ghana's independence was tied up with a, a huge Pan-African dream of um, African unity. And, uh, and of course, it didn't turn out quite as he wanted for all sorts of reasons, in the, same, in the sense that not only um, did we need institutions, um, did we have to build institutions, you know, because the, the British didn't actually do much of institution building at the time uh, because they were, you know, uh, colonialists. They wanted to, to sort of um, take as much wealth away as possible rather than, um, though actually Ghana, colonialism in Ghana was much better than in East Africa, uh, in that uh, Gegesberg, the governor, actually created in schools like Achimota and the Prince of Wales College which for training of teachers. So there were some things in place, but there, there was a lot needed to be done. And my father's generation was instrumental in building some of those institutions, irrespective of the fact that, you know, quite soon after independence, a lot of the money that had been accumulated was spent on liberation struggles in other parts of Africa. Um, and Nkrumah was in a hurry and wanted a united Africa, but if you can just imagine, you know, all the threats we hear in, in Britain about, oh, the EU wants a united Europe, ain't going to happen, <laughs> ain't going to happen, because, uh, you know, people want their own little nations, and, uh, but since all that happened, in, there is a sort of trading group called ECOWAS, which is West African Trading, and they're more, they're step, their plans are foot to, for a trading um, uh, zone throughout Africa. So little by little, people are seeing that trading as a continent is in the interest of, of Africans. Um, but the other things that are happening, or have happened, is that those colonial ties are really, really hard to break because the structures are there, the terms of trade are there from before colonialism, which means that um, uh, the price of commodities uh, fluctuate depending on, on, on so many factors. So it's the road to freedom. It's, 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 not, a, it's not a walk in the park. <laughs> yeah. No, not a, like, just like Brexit won't be a walk in the park. Uh, it's, it's a long, arduous slog, and it's not for the faint-hearted. Mm. So these kind of politics come through, you know, in different ways in the novel. Santi's mother, um, adoptive mother, Mama Rose, yes. um, also Rosamond Williams, yes, yes, <laughs> um, yes. aliases throughout the novel, she describes herself as an anarchist. Yes. Um, but Santi senses some contradictions in mm. her politics, and it's sort of related to the young ones and old ones yes. theme that runs through the novel. I wondered if you could talk about young ones and old ones, how they relate, um, you know, and that, that kind of maybe different worldviews that they have. Ah, well, in the novel, the old ones are, um, are really in hiding. Um, they did some really radical things in the, um, in the 70s and um, have dropped out and are living off the grid. And when they need money, they um, return to um, cities and perform, get what they want, and then go back to um, uh, where they're where they're living off the grid in the countryside, in any country, you know, in, 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 um, in Europe. And there's lots of countryside in Europe. Um, and the young ones are sort of Santi, Cobra, and Cat, who are, Santi's 14, Cobra and Cat are 16. And they, they work hard to keep the, um, uh, the circus alive, that they are the fronts people, they, they perform and, you know, Cobra charms snakes, he has a gift for ch snake charming, Cat throws knives and, you know, is, is very good at what she does, and um, uh, Santi rides a horse and does acrobatics and is very good at that. So they have a stake in the circus, and yet they feel that their, their voices are not listened to, like many young people. They feel that they're not, um, 
you know, I think in, in their heart of hearts, especially Santi and Kat, they would like a permanent home somewhere and uh, without all the traveling, without always having to live in the sticks and, and, and living, you know, um, traveling all the time. They want, they want their creature comforts. They want hot water and uh, uh, good meals all the time, not um, foraging and the rest of it. So they're quite materialistic, the young ones, and the old ones are, are dreamers. Mm. Mm. I found um, their interactions to be quite sort of illuminating now when I think about you know, intergenerational kind of politics. They learn mm -hmm. from each other. Um, and you mentioned before that you wanted this book to be for young people. Yes. Um, why was that? And what do you hope that young people are going to take away from this novel? Uh, I, I remember when I was a young person, which was a very, very long time ago, that um, uh, I read with such passion. I really enjoyed reading. I could lose myself in books. I can still lose myself, but when I was younger, it was much easier. You know, whole worlds would wash over me, and um, and I would absorb a lot of stuff. And um, it's not that a book changes your life, but when you're young, a book can mean so much to you, and I, I just feel that that is the age where people still have the capacity to absorb and um, and empathize and 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 sort of consider the world with a fresh fresh lens rather than jaded adults who know what they like and will continue doing what they like and until you know they can't, can no longer do it. Mm. I just think that when um, younger readers are, are very open to all sorts of ideas, and that's the time to try to, to um, encourage change. Excellent. I'm going to ask you now to read a second short excerpt from okay. A Jigsaw of Fire and Stars, in yeah. which the young ones and the old ones appear. Mm. Um, it's, you know, references some of the stuff we've been talking about, but will also frame know, the questions to come. Um, this is a part of the novel where um, Mama Rose, who's been putting off telling uh, Santi about her origins and, and how she found her and so on, um, is, is sort of, is forced to, to sort of tell her what she knows and to give her the artifacts that she was found with. Mama Rose folds the diamond-studded tutu, puts it on my lap and bites her lip, chews on it while she decides how best to say what else is on her mind. From the cargo they bundled into this chest here, your people were rich, Santi, she says at last. People from Africa. They must have wanted to start a new life over here. If times were bad then, they're even worse now. Floods, famine, drought, Every disaster you can think of, there's worse to come. I anticipate the words in Mama Rose's mouth before she says them. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. The story of how things came to be this bad and can only get worse. How the poor become poorer as money rises to the top how everyone with any sense is moving north, on foot, on trains, boats and planes to find greener pastures. I know the story by heart, and truth be told, it makes me squirm, even though the way Redwood tells it, he should know. He used to make money, dunghills of money, worked in Wall Street in the USA till he bailed out, been moving ever since, that's why we live in wild places, live off the grid, because deep in their hearts, the old ones believe that the way things are, we're doomed. And when the end times come, only those of us who live off the grid will be left standing. Cat laughs at, laughs at them behind their back, and I do too. We call them doomsters. According to them, nothing's ever going to get better. Cobra, as you'd expect, doesn't dismiss them completely. Says all families are mostly crazy, and ours is no different. 
have to learn to take the rough with the smooth. You used to laugh at them until they took us one summer to the Spanish beach where Mama Rose found me. There, we saw brown bodies lying dead on the shore, women tanning themselves as stone throws away. Wiped the smiles clean off our faces, that did. So, when Mama Rose says, strangers pitch up on our shores and we herd them into camps. They come in broken boats and we let them drown. This time, her words become entwined with my nightmare of a baby thrown overboard as people thrash in the sea. Indeed, her words dwell in me with a ferocity they never have before, because I'm there, and this is about me and people like me. Thank you. So quite clearly, issues of race are important in this novel mm. and also of representation. Um, I read that you adore Toni Morrison, yes. and these are things that she you know, explores in her own works as well. Your novel, before I even read that, reminded me of a particular quote by Toni Morrison, mm. and I wanted to share it with you to see you know, what you thought, and as a kind of starting off point. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is Toni Morrison talking about her novel, Sula. It was interesting to me that black people at one time seemed not to respond to evil in the ways other people did, they thought evil had a natural place in the universe. They did not need to eradicate it. Evil is not an alien force, it's just a different force. I wondered if you had maybe encountered that quote before, because it seems to me in reading the novel that while you challenge the way that people of colour are represented, mm. um, sort of by putting Santi in the heroine's position, you're also doing more work there and kind of breaking down the idea that there are even you know, goodies or baddies in the first place. Mm. It's not a simple reversal of those roles. Um, is that something that you intended to do or...? No. <laughs> Short answer, no. And I haven't come across that uh, quote before, but it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. We teach it to first mm. years at the University of Canterbury, so... <laughs> Sign up for a class. <laughs> My favourite character was Isaka Prempe. Yes. Um, and to me, he exemplified that quote. Yeah. He's haunted by the unquiet dead. Um, he's not a hero, certainly not a hero, but not really a villain mm. either. He's much more complicated than that. Yeah. I, could you tell us about Isaka? Well, um, the, the story evolved and Isaka became a, a crucial part of it because the original idea was that everybody had died on the, on, apart from Santi in that crossing. But then um, when um, Santi in Cadiz meets, well, is, is performing and um, is conscious of two people in the audience who have a very keen interest in her. One of them is, a, is an African like herself, as dark as herself, and the other is a is somebody who uh, is called Grey Eyes um, because his eyes are grey and he's a trafficker of some sort. And they're clearly working together. And I just thought, well, actually, wouldn't it be interesting if somebody else had survived and it was Isaka, who, whose brother is in the dream uh, and is also Isaka's in the dream too, as a burly, bald-headed man. And, um, and I just thought, you know, somebody who's was aware of what was happening, um, but was then caught out in the sense that she, he was the ship's engineer and was aware that um, uh, the uh, boat should, uh, should dock quickly because the um, people who own it want to scuttle it so they can claim insurance on it. Um, uh, but anyhow, so, so all these things came to me, and so he became this quite complicated figure as, like, he has survived, but his brother has died, and all these people have died, and that haunts him in a much more ferocious way than it, it haunts Santi. Uh, Santi has the dream, but, but um, uh, Isaka is, drinks heavily and is really um, slightly unhinged by what he's participated in. But then he becomes instrumental in, uh, in helping um, uh, uh, the people traffickers um, be caught mm. and redeems himself some way there. Mm. Yeah. The whole way through the novel, all the characters are so 
sort of generously depicted and that they're allowed to, to sort of be very multi-dimensional. And the same thing sort of goes um, for Scarlett, a young um, white girl yeah. in the novel. Mm. Um, we find out, in fact, that she's sort of been groomed, um, she's been coerced, but she's also quite unreliable and yes. withholds information. Yeah. She seems like quite a typical white girl, to be honest. Um, no, mustn't generalise. <laughs> <laughs> mustn't generalise. <laughs> but, yeah, I just, um, you know, maybe talk about Scarlett a little bit yeah. and, and the way that she figures in the novel. Mm, I really like Scarlett. Um, she's a, a tricky character in the sense that she's... Um, She's a child who should have all the advantages in the world, but her parents are, um, are druggies and gamblers and clearly with a lot of money, but have spent it all. So um, are in hock to um, a character called Miguel, who's very bad and who, you know, traf you know uh, traffics young people, um, young girls of all, you know, of all nationalities, and Scarlett becomes one of those girls and is very, very distressed. Um, and uh, Santi saves Scarlett in that, you know, um, Scarlett decides to just end it all. Her parents have left her with Miguel, and uh, she's now aware of what um, Miguel expects her to do. And really, she's not, she doesn't want to do that. So she tries to drown herself, but Santi saves her. And, um, and uh, she, Scarlet and Cat fall in love. And, um, and it's sort of like a thunderbolt, which is always useful for a writer, because you don't have to unpick the, the reasoning. It's just they, they love each other. And um, Scarlet is, is brought into the family unit. Um, but because she's an outsider, and because um, uh, Mama Rose and Redwood and Busy Lizzie are suspicious of her, um, Santi has to plead uh, Scarlett's case so that she's accepted, even though in her heart of hearts, um, Santi is aware that um, Cobra might like uh, Scarlet, and so she, for the first time in her life, she is furiously, ferociously jealous of Scarlet, and and so it's all teenage angst and so on. But they get through it. They get through it. Yeah, yeah, we all do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's some fantastic um, models of relationships for young people to kind of learn from and read into. I think it's a real strength of the novel. Um, we don't want to spoil it all, so you know, pick up a copy of the novel after this. Um, I want to talk just, you know, we don't have a lot of time mm. left, briefly, about your award-winning documentary, The Witches of Gambaga. Uh -huh. um, and some of you might have seen it screened here yesterday. We're going to play the trailer, and I thought you might like to just um, introduce that trailer for okay. us. Okay, well, the, the Witches of Gambaga is a story that completely captured me. Uh, in 1995, um, I was working as a stringer for the BBC World Service, which means that I was asked to do stories outside Accra, uh, which wouldn't get covered. And um, I was doing one story up in northern Ghana when a civil servant who was showing me about said, because um, you know, there was a lot of destroyed buildings, said, that used to be a witch's camp. I said, what? I said, oh, yes, we, we have witches' camps up here. And of course, I hadn't, you know, being a southerner, um, I didn't know that witches' camps existed in northern Ghana. A lot of my friends didn't. Um, and so I just felt I had to visit it. And it was a, quite an adventure because the chief of Gambaga, when I went and said, oh, can I, you know, I, I, I'm press accredited, here's my thing. I said, can I visit the camp and, and do interviews with the women? He said to my horror, no. And I said, what? He said, no. He said, you have to get permission from the DC before you can go and see the, the women in the camp because this is a political issue. So I waited and waited and sunset came and the DC came and gave me permission. I quickly did an interview, went to the camp, um, escorted by the chief's son and uh, interviewed women who believed they were witches, all except for one uh, who said, no, she wasn't a witch. It was, And then I discovered that there was a, a, a sort of trial by ordeal to determine if a woman was a witch or not. And, uh, and the, it all depends on how a chicken dies as to whether you're a witch. And I 
was sort of horrified when I heard all this, uh, but it did the interview, you know, the women sang, were clapped and so on, and I had a good package for a feature. The last bus had left town and I had to sleep somewhere. The DC found me a room and there was, there was no electricity in Gambaga. There was a, I had a kerosene lamp and um, uh, took it to this room that had been allocated to me. Didn't take off my clothes, didn't take off my shoes and lay down. And as the kerosene lamp dimmed and darkness fell, I thought, well, what would happen if I was accused of witchcraft? Uh, how would I let my parents know that I'd been accused? And what would I do if the trial by ordeal went um, against me? And so rather than being an outsider doing a story, I sort of started to participate in this psychodrama of accusations and, and, and what, can, what the outcome can be, because some of the women I'd interviewed had been in Gambaga for 20 years. And so I thought, I have to try to make a documentary about this. And um, I didn't get it together till 2004, because most um, commissioning editors in, in uh, Britain at the time aren't really interested in this sort of story, especially if you want to tell it from a viewpoint which doesn't mock superstition, but tries to respect it so that there can be a, a dialogue around the film. And so it. Um, a friend of mine who's the co-producer of the film, Amina Mama, was involved in um, getting funding um, from the Ford Foundation. And then feminists around the world in Britain and in Ghana supported the film, and I got money from the African Women's Development Fund. And bit by bit, we, got a, we managed to film it uh, and then to also edit it. And in 2009, it was finished. But here's the trailer to the film. Okay, maybe I have to, yeah, success. Did I speak too soon? Well, I'll press it again. Right. While we sort that out, I might say you, you already kind of answered my question. Yeah. But it, it must have been a sort of a difficult thing to balance both being critical of the way that these women are treated, um, but then also without playing into those tropes about what superstition means, people being sort of primitive or, you know, stuff like that. Mm. I feel like you, you trod that line sort of, you know, very um, well. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, wa it wasn't that difficult because um, everybody in Ghana, well, not everybody, but Ghanaians are religious people. Uh, they have a profound sense of the supernatural, uh, including the evil. And um, there are many accusations of witchcraft throughout the country. And um, uh, as a Ghanaian, uh, I, I wanted, I didn't want to mock belief in the supernatural. I wanted to understand how scapegoating occurs. Uh, whether it's women who are scapegoated. Uh, in, in northern Ghana, it's always women who are scapegoated. Uh, but the situations in which they're scapego scapegoated and how if you defy the gender regime of, of northern Ghana, i.e. if you're not subservient enough, if you're a woman who lives on your own and you're highly successful, you're going to get accused of witchcraft because um, men find it very hard to tolerate successful women. Other women find it very hard to tolerate successful women. Um, and uh, whether it's migrants who are scapegoated or women in northern Ghana, the human mind has a great capacity to find scapegoats for, uh, you know, what's going wrong. Mm. Yeah. Shall I do it now? Okay. I'm Yaba Beidou, a writer and filmmaker. For years, I've been fascinated by stories that link ordinary, middle-aged women like myself to witchcraft. Witchcraft belief permeates Ghanaian culture. It's a part of the ether we breathe here. And this, in a country proud of its human rights record. I discovered that there were over a thousand women condemned for witchcraft living in camps. Asana was tortured by her brother, who threatened to pluck out her eyes if she didn't confess to witchcraft. 
Azara was once a prosperous trader with a restaurant and a house of her own. During an outbreak of meningitis, she was one of three successful women accused of starting the epidemic. Salmata is now a confirmed witch. Her guilt was determined by how a chicken died when it was slaughtered. The government has to come in and be proactive. The community has to be educated and to accept the fact that these women are not abnormal. Unless the government engages in a wide-scale education campaign, it seems that a woman's future is going to be determined, as it has been over the past hundred years, by the way a chicken dies. is a really, really excellent documentary. It's available on Canopy, but um, also, as John Campbell mentioned last night, um, through Prime as well, so I do suggest that you catch it if you can. I've sort of rambled a wee bit, and we need to you set aside... <laughs> you haven't rambled. <laughs> we need to set aside some time for questions. Mm -hmm. um, we want to hear from you. Uh, there will be two roving mics going around. We've got about 10 minutes, um, and maybe I'll sneak some questions in if no one else wants to. But before that, um, could we all just give Yaba a round of applause? <laughs> if you have a question that you'd like to ask, if you could just sort of like raise your hand and I'll make sure that someone with a microphone comes to you. Yes. Um, thank you so much for just all of your work and labor, it's so beautiful and powerful. I'm really interested in what has been the outcome since the documentary has come out, what has been the fate of the women in the camps, and what it, what's the impact you have seen happen as a result of the work? Um, the impact has been varied. The government's knee-jerk uh, response was to, you know, a decree to close down all the camps, and then the women themselves um, sent a delegation to Accra to speak to their government, to explain that the camps are places of exile, but are also sanctuaries, and that if the camps were closed and they were forced back to their villages, the likelihood of them being murdered would be um, very, very high. So the government backed away from that and seems to have just dragged its feet, basically. Um, there seems to be People in government seem to think that um, uh, there are other priorities than what's than women being incarcerated in camps in northern Ghana. Um, there's a money is used for other things, not for human rights um, uh, education. Uh, there are the African Women's Development Fund has sort of sponsored groups in northern Ghana who are advocates for women who are accused of witchcraft. So that is happening. But that is very piecemeal. And um, I think the, the value of the film really was that it opened up a debate in the country. It's been shown on Ghana TV many times. It's compulsory viewing for every new student at the University of Ghana uh, so that people can actually start talking about why women are scapegoated in this way. And, that, um, and unpick the fact that there is no religious edict to say that women are evil. It's more ambivalence of religions, traditional Christianity and Islam uh, um, towards women generally. Yeah, so that's what's come out of it. Any other questions? Yeah. Wait for you to get the mic so we can record you. <laughs> I just wondered when was the most recent um, when was the most recent um, person in, sent to this camp? I didn't hear the question. When, um, most recently, when what was year? someone sent to the camp? Is it what something year was that's that? still sort of? Happening? Uh, I think it's still happening. Um, I went back in 2013 with my co-producer, and one of the. Um, uh, 
a young girl of uh, about 15 had been, um, had, and her mother had, uh, had fled to the camp because um, the girl had beaten all the uh, boys in her class with, for the, uh, the exams, basically, the national exams. She'd done really well, and, um, and so they accused her of being a witch. And so mother and, and daughter went and found refuge in, Ga in the camp at Gambaga. The mother was still there. The, the girl actually was now at a boarding school paid for by the government. Um, but what interested me when the film came out in 2009 was that it came out in Accra, and the audience was predominantly middle-class Ghanaian women who were interested in the subject. And uh, several of the women, um, uh, one of them, who was a, a well-known journalist, um, got up and said, thank you for this film, because I've been accused of witchcraft, because I'm such a successful journalist. Another woman who was a scientist, who had given birth to a disabled child, said that, you know, my family have accused me of... So it just made me realize that although the North is where the structures are in place to help women who are accused of witchcraft, throughout the country, it, it's an issue, and it, it's going to take a lot of time. And, and that, you know, although uh, it's happening, you could, there are physical examples of this in northern Ghana, I think the way women are demonized when they venture into politics all around the world, for instance, the way Hillary Clinton was treated, um, I think all that is to do with these ancient, ancient feelings that women who step out of the domestic sphere are dangerous human beings. Any other questions? Oh, we got two. How about we go back row and then forward a little bit. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little something about how you came to make your um, documentary for Channel 4? I want your sex. Oh, well, um, well, I spent a year in, in um, Spain um, uh, writing a first draft of True Murder. And uh, one night I had a dream, and the, the idea came to me fully fledged with the title, I Want Your Sex. Uh, and it was um, uh, that I should make a documentary uh, looking about myths surrounding black sexuality. And so that's what I Want Your Sex is about. It's looking at um, uh, the story of the Hottentot Venus, who um, came, was, came to um, Europe, to London, in the early 19th century, and uh, was paraded uh, naked. Um, uh, and all the myths that surrounded her as a black woman and her sexuality, that endless, endless sex, and, um, and then looking at um, literature, things like, um, uh, let me think, The Heart of Darkness, that story, um, uh, the tale of um, Ryder Haggard, she, that, that story. Uh, so it's looking at, historically, um, European fantasies about black sexuality. And then how, in some cases, some black artists have incorporated that or have questioned it. And so looking at Spike Lee's um, She's Gotta Have It, um, and so on. It was just a, it was a, it was a really, I, I really enjoyed making that film. Um, uh, and uh, a friend of mine at the time was the commissioning editor at Channel 4 for Arts, Valdemar Januček, and I sort of took the idea to him and he loved it and gave me development money and then um, gave me money to, to make the film. It was really good fun. Cool, I think we just have time for one last question, so coming back to the front here. I've really enjoyed your session, thank you very much. Just wondered if you could comment on something that is not what you've been talking about, but modern slavery in Britain. And, um, and I just wondered if you would ever consider doing documentaries on that. We don't hear a great deal about it in mm. New Zealand, but are aware that it's quite rife, I think, in Britain, isn't it? Yes, I, I hear it is. I, I can't really comment on it because I haven't investigated it. Um, but um, 
I, I've come to a time in my life where uh, I want to make one more film, and that's a documentary I've started making about my late father. Um, I'm really interested in his generation of Ghanaians, um, the dreams they had about the country Ghana would be, and the reality that they, they lived through. Um, and, and so that's the, a film I want to finish. Um, but the rest of the time, I'm, you know, I want to, I want to write. <laughs> Google tells me that we can expect more from Yabba Beidou in the future, so, so do keep your eyes open. Um, but that's kind of all we have time for in this session. Thank you so much for being here, and another round of applause. Thank you.